I want to make you guys aware of something. Um, we try to make sure that there's resources for our people to use um, in order to lead you closer to Jesus and each other. One of such resources is the CBR Journal. Um, we purchase these and give these away for free uh, to everybody who comes here to Pillar. If we have them, they're free and they're yours. So go ahead and take them. Um, in this year's edition, you actually have to download the reading plan because they've expanded the notes section. Uh, and so I advise you to avail yourself to this. Take, um, read the directions before you do it because uh, it will aid you greatly. Um, and that should be outside in the hallway. I want to pray this morning uh, in particular for... Oh, also, real quick before we pray, uh, on your bulletin, you may have a, a separate cross-reference sheet. If you don't, on your bulletin, in the QR code, there is a section called cross-references. Uh, there's going to be a lot today. Today's going to be, it could be slightly heavy for some of y'all. It's all good. We're talking about King Jesus, but that is there for you. Um, and I want to pray particularly for those who are sick among us. I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't know somebody who is sick right now. Um, and we want to pray for those people um, that God heals them and that the sickness will end. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but I'm done with COVID. I'm finished. I quit last year sometime, but COVID didn't quit. So I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just I'm trying to ignore it. But let's just lift, let me lift my voice in prayer and ask God to do something for us that are here and for those who are homesick. Father, we come to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us, a wretched group of sinners who have fallen short of your glory. I know, Lord, that I am the chief of sinners in this place. My heart hurts for those who have been devastated and have lost income for those who have lost loved ones because of this multi-year virus that has been ravaging this planet. Lord, I remember in March of 2020, we thought we would flatten the curve. And here we are, January 2022, and it's as high as ever. And Lord, I don't pretend to know your sovereign will, know your sovereign plan in this. But I do know that you will receive your glory and that your church will come out stronger as a result of this pandemic than it was going in. Lord, I'm grateful for what this pandemic has exposed in many churches, including Pillar. I'm thankful for giving us um, the strength to endure, you have sustained us as, a, as an entity, as a people, but you've also allowed the chaff to blow and to move, not just at Pillar, but at churches across this city and this state and this world. And I think, Lord, as a result, we have a leaner body, a little bit more agile, a little bit able to be a little bit more effective in the communities that you've called us to reach. Lord, I think of the communities here in East Fort Worth who are in desperate need of love and of care and of the gospel. And I pray that, that our body would be hands and, 
and feet and a message to those people. That they would hear the gospel of truth from the lips of the people of this place. And that they would be loved by the hands and the feet of the people of this place. That we would give our all for your glory. That we don't do it to be known, to be seen. We don't do it to receive praise from man. We don't want that as our reward. I don't want, I don't want, we don't want the cheap praise of man to be our reward. Lord, our reward is the praise of our God who says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we would desire to hear out of the mouth of you, Lord Jesus. And so would you encourage us, embolden us, take us out of our comfort zones as you've done, you forced us out of our comfort zones, and help us to worship you as the king that you truly are. You are worthy of all our praise and all of our worship. On Christ, this solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But on you, Lord, we stand firm. Father, fill us with your spirit this morning. Encourage your saints. Build us up in the faith. Teach us something. And exhort us and move us to action. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know about y'all, but I used to really love Saturday morning cartoons. How many of y'all remember Saturday morning cartoons? I used to get up early in the morning. It's the only time I would get up by myself at 6 a.m. Because you got to get all the chores done before you could turn on the TV. And so during the week, I wouldn't get up. But I remember, and I don't remember if this was all on the same channel, but I remember this lineup. If y'all remember, it was X-Men, Spider-Man, Street Sharks, Biker Mice from Mars, and James Bond Jr. Y'all remember that? Y'all don't remember that? Come on, man. I'm showing my age. James Bond Jr., bruh. Woo! Biker Mice from Mars. Yeah, that, that was the lineup. It was killer. Every Saturday morning, I get up, and I remember boom, boom, boom. But there was always that one or two Saturdays a month where I, I get up early, I do my chores, I'm sitting down. I'm, you know, this is my time to binge watch TV. And my mother would run downstairs, turn off the TV, and yell at me, shh, don't move, and turn off the TV. You know, it's my only time to binge watch TV, so I'm looking at my mom like, mom, right? And I'm yelling, and she's like, shh, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, get down. So I'm like, oh, get down for it, I just want to watch X-Men, right? I'm down here. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. We was hiding from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Y'all don't remember that? That's a true story. I ain't making fun of nobody. This is what happened. You, you, she would be sitting at the window, and she'd see a couple ladies walking down the street with the watchtower in their hands, and ding-dong, and before the ding-dong, she's already downstairs. And we down like this, and we was hiding because we didn't want nobody to know we was home because my mother didn't want the smoke. I remember then as an adult, um, as an adult, uh, I would carry on the tradition of ducking and hiding. But then at one point, uh, my cousin, at my cousin's house, he was coming in from bringing groceries. And uh, I was a Christian. I had just become a believer at this point. And he was coming in from bringing, from bringing in groceries, and they got him at the, at the driveway, right? And they pulled up on him. Hey, man, what's up? We're going to have a conversation with you. And my cousin is very nice. If he's listening, you know who you are. Very nice guy. 
He's like, sure, I'll have a conversation. They come in the house, and they convince him to have a multi-week Bible study with him. So he said, cool. But as soon as he agreed and they left, he hopped on the phone. You okay? What's up? I got caught, dog. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened? They got me at the driveway bringing in the groceries, man. They want to have a multi-week Bible study with your boy. You want to come? And y'all don't know, when I first became a Christian, I was one of the most zealous men on earth. Very few was more zealous than me. And I was like, you know I want to come. What time? So we get there. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is Jesus. Jesus had just saved me. I, I was enamored with the person of Jesus. And I was like, I want to, you know, anything about Jesus, I want. And so they came to the house. There was three of them. I remember their names. I don't know if I get in trouble for naming them. But I remember the names. One guy, two, girl, two women. And they brought me to... Um, to a particular passage. This is the passage that we're going to study today. And so I, I started talking to them. I was like, man, Jesus, you know, he's Lord, da, da, da. They were like, yeah, you know, he's the first created being of God. And I was like, okay, what, what does that mean? I thought he was, I thought he was God. He's the first created. And they said, no, turn to Colossians chapter one. And they brought me to Colossians chapter one. And through that passage, they began to teach me that Jesus was a created being. But that was contrary to what I learned when I first came to faith. And so that began a deep study of the person of Jesus, and it started at this very text that we're going to study this morning. So go ahead and open in your copy of God's Word to this text, to Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, we're going to see the person, uh, the Apostle Paul, lower the boom on the reality of who Jesus is. From this passage, you're going to end up gleaning, firstly, that Jesus is God, not that he's, just, not that he's a creation of God, but that he's God, that Jesus gave his life to save mine, and that salvation comes through faith. All of that is found in this morning's passage. Look with me. We're not going to read the whole thing first. We're just going to break it into parts, and this is my hope at, at the end of this message. My hope is that by the end of this, you see Jesus as bigger than you saw him coming in. I don't know the size or the stature of your Jesus last year, but this year we need to recognize the true stature of who he is and that Jesus is big. Okay, I don't mean he's a big person. I mean, he's a big deity. He's God. The Passage opens up like this in Colossians chapter 1. And as I said, we're going to use some words in this sermon and some stuff. Take notes. Chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Stop there. This is not the same type of image that we see in Genesis chapter 1, 26, where it says God made man in his image and in his likeness. Jesus isn't just an image of God. He is the image of God. If you want to know who God is, look no further than the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than the person of Jesus. The reason why the imaging is different is because by looking at us, we only get portions of knowledge of who God is. Because sin has marred every human in here. But if you want a true representation 
of what God is, who God is and what God is like, you look at the person of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is what it says about Jesus. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Y'all hear them words? He's the radiance of God's glory. And then this is what it says. In the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the pinnacle of God's glory in that sense. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing all the beauty of God wrapped up in human flesh, in one person. And it says that he's the exact expression of his nature. Remember what Colossians 1.15 says. He is the image of the invisible God. What was invisible has become revealed and visible in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 18 says this. No one has ever seen God. Y'all see that in your cross-reference sheet? Is it there? Y'all got one? It says, no one has ever seen God. That's what it says. Then it says this. The only son who himself is God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Jesus is the one who reveals the person, the character, the nature of God to all sinful humanity. Now, I know this, I'm going off the sermon already. When, I say, when, when the text says no one has ever seen God, the first thing that should pop into your head is, well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, there were visions of God. Were they not? People saw God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6, I sit on the throne, high and exalted. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. The train of the robe filled the temple with smoke. There's people seeing God in the Old Testament, but John chapter 1 says that no one has ever seen God. How can they both be true? If no one is seeing God, yet people are seeing God, somebody lying. Or we get clarification from John in John chapter 6. This is an e-cross reference sheet where it says no man has seen the Father. If no man has seen the Father, but people have seen God, and it says no one has ever seen the Father, who are they seeing in the Old Testament? They're seeing the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This is called a theophany. Theos, God, and fine, something to do with sight and vision. Theophany or Christophany. They're seeing God. Like I said before, if you want to know about the person of God, who God is, and what God is like, here's the first place you don't look. Don't look within yourself. I don't care what Oprah and them taught you. You're not going to find out who God is and what God is like by looking internally. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says this about humanity. It says, human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Now, I know you read a verse like that, or you read a verse like Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says, the heart is deceitful and sick. Who can trust it? Right? You read that verse, but you start to think there are people that you know that are humble, kind, loving people. Those two realities aren't contradictory, just the same way where people have not seen God, or it says no one's seen God, and then it says people are seeing God. Those aren't contradictory. We just need further clarification. From a human standpoint, there are very kind, generous, good people all around here, all over this world. But when God doesn't get his glory, that which we deem as good is actually not good. Anytime you extract glory from God, 
that action ceases to be a good action in the sight of God. Because God's desire is that his name be lifted high. And when we take credit for doing something good, when he's the one that's given us the strength, the resolve, and the mental faculties to do that good, then we are stealing glory from God, and God doesn't like that. That is called being selfish. That is called being evil. Does that make sense? We there? Don't look within because what you're going to find is a self-glorifying, idol-making machine if you look within yourself. That's what you'll find. A self-glorifying, idol-making machine where God is you, 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 and whatever you want. Another place you don't want to look if you want to know where God is like is you don't want to look to those over-spiritually people. Y'all know those people who are over-spiritual? Everything that happens is like, oh, wait, I'm hearing from God. I have a vision from on high, and it says, whatever it is they say. Be leery of those people who always have the unique revelation of God on their tongue. Why am I saying that? Because the text told me to be leery of them. Go a little bit further. Just look at Colossians in your cross-reference sheet. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. It says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices in the worship of angels or those who claim access to a visionary realm. You want to be careful thinking that God is like those individuals who claim to have a unique and special access to God that you cannot have. Don't look to those people. At the foot of the cross, all people, you and me, have unique access to the same God. There is nobody higher or lower in the kingdom. You in it or you out it. But when those who come in, they seem to be spiritual, they seem to be super connected, and you're like, oh man, all of a sudden, what do we start to do? We start to idolize that person rather than worshiping God. We start wanting their gifts and their connectivity rather than appreciating the connectivity that you do have. This is what the text says, let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices, which means harming themselves, or the worship of angels, they're not to be worshiped. Or claiming access to a visionary realm, special individual revelation that no one else has that is uncredited and unfounded. There are times where God does that, but he'll always validate his claim. This is what it says about those people. Such people are inflated by empty notions uh, and, and they have an unspiritual mind. That's what the text says. And it's crazy because we say they're spiritual, but the text says that's the most unspiritual thing you can have. This is what else it says about those people in verse 19. He doesn't hold on to the head. Who is God? What are they holding on to? Their ability to make you want to be like them. That's why they always got to have that word. Because if they don't, they feel empty. They need you to know that they're specially connected. No. No. That person, he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and held together by its ligaments, tendons, and grows with the growth that is from God. The text starts off by saying that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, and if that's the question burning in your heart, that you want to know more of God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to study the person of Jesus. That's what you need to do. I want you to study everything that Jesus ever said that we could find in the text. And I want you to study everything that Jesus ever did that you could find in the text. 
If you want to get intimately related to God, study Jesus. Simple. Start there. Here's a practical suggestion for you that was told to me by my spiritual mentor when I first came to faith. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the Gospels are unique. They're written by a different person to a different audience for a different reason. Matthew is written by Matthew, who was an apostle. It's written to the Jewish people in particular for the reason of displaying Jesus as king. Mark is written by Mark, who was an associate of both Peter and Paul. Mark was written to Romans, to, to, to Italians, to Romans. He's writing in order to display that Jesus is a servant, because that's the, 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 the highlight. That's what he's highlighting about the person of Christ. Matthew's highlighting that he's a king. Mark is highlighting that he's a servant. Luke is written by an associate of the apostle Paul. He's the physician. He's the one that wrote the book of Acts. Luke is writing to Greeks, in particular to one particular Greek named Theophilus. He's writing in order to display that Jesus is the perfect man. You got king with Matthew, servant with Mark, perfect man with Luke, and then John, also another apostle. His book is authored to anybody who will read, to the whole world, it says. It was the last one written. And his bent is to show you and teach you that Jesus is God. He's king, but he's servant. He's perfect man, but he's God. I exhort you to pick one of those gospels and make it your gospel. If you want to get closer to Jesus, own one of those gospels. Pick one. The one I picked is John. That's the gospel I I memorized. I read it every day. I wanted to know more about who Jesus was as it pertains to him being God. Pick one of the gospels for yourselves and own that gospel. Don't let nobody be able to tell you nothing that's in that gospel. That's yours. You take ownership over that. You will grow closer to God by your study of that one particular gospel than you ever could watching or trying to be like anybody else who seems more spiritual than you. As I started, I talked about how we were ducking and hiding from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then eventually I had an encounter with those Jehovah's Witnesses, and they brought me to this passage that would um, describe Jesus as being the first created being from God the Father. It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Then it says, the firstborn of all creation. And what they proceeded to teach me was this, that firstborn really means first made, or literally the first one born, right? Like begotten. But as I studied the passage, I came across other passages where that word was used differently. The same way, and I'm going off script real quick, you know how you heard Jesus as the only begotten Son of God? Well, it's crazy. In another book in the New Testament, it says that Isaac is the only begotten son of Abraham. But Isaac has a big brother named Ishmael. If Ishmael is Isaac's big brother, then Isaac can't be the only begotten, unless only begotten doesn't mean what we thought it meant. The word only begotten is monogonase, which means the unique son of promise. 
Isaac was the unique son of promise to Abraham that would carry on the line through Jacob. And in the same way, Jesus, being the only begotten son of God, isn't the only or first creation of God. That's not what it means. It means that he's the unique son of promise. That in Christ, all the, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So in the same way that that word isn't what it seems, this word isn't what it seems. This word, first born, because it looks like it's saying first created or literally the firstborn in a lineage. But then I came to Psalm 89, verse 27, where it's speaking of King David. In the first section of that sentence, it says, I will also make him, David, my firstborn. A few things to notice about that passage. One, God is making somebody a firstborn. But what do you know of the king, King David? He's the youngest of multiple brothers, not the oldest. So already we're like, wait, he's being made something called firstborn, but he's the youngest of his brothers. And then the psalmist clarifies what he means by firstborn in that same sentence, Psalm 89, verse 27. I will also make him my firstborn. Then it says, greatest of the kings of the earth. Then I came to Jeremiah 31, verse 9, and it says, God says, for I am a father, I am Israel's father, and he says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, if you remember the sons of Jacob, Ephraim is the younger brother to Manasseh, but God says that Ephraim is his firstborn. How can he be the firstborn if he's not the firstborn? Maybe it's because firstborn doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe the word is multifaceted, just like only begotten, or shalom, or in English, love. In Genesis chapter 48 is where we get clarification for how Ephraim is the firstborn. In Genesis 48, I'm going to just freestyle this explanation real quick. In Genesis 48, we see Joseph... He's the son of Jacob, bringing his sons to Jacob to be blessed. And his two boys is Manasseh and Ephraim, coming to be blessed by Jacob. So Jacob can, can give the blessing unto him. And when Joseph brings his sons to be blessed by his dad, Israel, or Jacob, his name was later changed to Israel, when he, when he brings his sons to be blessed by him, he breaks sure that his oldest son, Manasseh, is on the right side of Jacob because this is the side by which blessing is passed, through the right hand. And he made sure his younger son, Ephraim, was at Jacob's left side. And so he brings his sons, he presents his sons to Jacob, and Jacob does this. He crosses his hand. Joseph, knowing that his father was basically blind at this point of his life, goes, oh no, dad, <laughs> you got it twisted, cuz. Turn it back like this. Ephraim, uh, Manasseh's the oldest son. Put your right hand on his head for the blessing. And then Jacob says, no, no. And he does this again. And this is what is said in verse 19 and 20. But his father refused to change his hands. And he said, I know, my son, I know. He, too, will be a tribe, and he, too, will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. 
and his offspring will become a more populous nation. So he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh. In that passage, what do we see? Somebody giving something called preeminence over another being. That word firstborn means authority, superiority, foremost, or preeminent. Okay, the the Greek word there is prototokos. Prototokos means authority, superiority, firstmost, or preeminence. The Apostle Paul knew and he used that word specifically for a specific reason, which we're going to see later. He's going to exemplify who Jesus is with that word. There was already a word in Paul's language that he could have used if he wanted to teach that Jesus was the first created being of God. That's protokis. But he didn't use protokis. He used prototokos. Why? Look at the rest of the, the verses there. It says he's the image of the invisible God, the prototokos over all creation, the firstborn of all creation. Then listen to what Paul says in verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What's Paul teaching us? That Jesus is, has authority, superiority, foremost, and preeminent over all things. The text says that Jesus created everything. If you put him in categories, the created versus the non-created, if he created everything that's in existence, he would have to have created himself, but he's not in that category. That's because he's God. He's over all things that he has created. There's nothing greater than the name and the power of Jesus in all of creation. This is the Jesus that you say at the end of your prayer that you don't know has this power, this strength, this might. We say in Jesus' name, so weak. But we're invoking the most powerful name in existence. The most powerful creator being ever. The God who created all things, rulers, authorities, dominions, all things were created through him and for him. That's the name we're saying. Shouldn't that change how you pray? This is the same Jesus that we say we worship. Shouldn't that change how we worship? When we sing in Christ alone, I stand. We're saying we're standing upon the God who created all things, and there's nothing greater than him. And we're in him. Standing on him is our foundation. That should change how we engage in spiritual warfare, not as feeble and afraid, but as sons of the most high God who created all things. We walk with strength in his name, not timidity. Guys, you want to go out and share the name of Jesus with your block? Share it with power. They don't know who Jesus is, but you do. He's king of kings and Lord of lords, the text says. It says for everything, verse 16, everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Think about this. What is Paul doing? He's exhausting his language to show you that there's nothing greater than Jesus. Let me ask you, is your Jesus little or is your Jesus that big? 
Like, really think about that. Do you serve a small, tiny, I'm afraid type of Jesus? Or is your Jesus the one who everything was created by and for in heaven and on earth, things that are invisible and visible? You know, (laughs) oh, that's telling, visible and invisible. Don't think like ghosts and gooblins and stuff that you can't, no, no, no. Think about those things that you think are outside of God's control that you don't pray about, the things that are non-tangible. You don't think God is sovereign over you know what you think God is sovereign over by the things you pray for. You don't pray for it, he ain't sovereign over it in your mind. If you're not dependent on God for it, he ain't got control over it in your mind. You do. Or somebody else does. But he has control whether you see it, feel it, or not. Jesus is big. He wasn't some creation. He's Mighty. He's big. It says, whether thrones or dominions. Dominion means to rule over. A throne is a seat of authority. There's no authority and no area by which he does not have jurisdiction. Including your life. His rightful place is the throne of your soul. It says, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And for him. And it says, He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So, this is what I want in your mind. We're not done. I could go all day. We're talking about Jesus. When you read Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Where should your mind go? Jesus. He created all things. Your mind didn't go there last time you read Genesis 1 1. Let your mind go there now. Jesus is the creator God who created all things. When you read John 1, 3, all things were created through him and apart from him, uh, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Think Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3, that he sustains all things by his powerful word. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but If you put your hand on your heart and you let it sit there for a little bit, you start to realize how feeble your life is and how frail you are. I I don't know if I've done that. I put my hand on my heart and I just stood there and I just realized I don't make this thing beat. I can't even control if it starts, goes, but I can't control any. Y'all may remember this, but two and a half years ago to three years ago when we were getting ready to plant this church, uh, I was having severe heart issues and my heart would would jump and skip and it was doing all kinds of of horrible things and I realized quickly I am not in control I'm not I thought I was we were praying at Pastor Eric's house and I stood up like a dart and was like something something happened in my heart I don't know what happened it felt like it just stopped and we drove to the ER and Pastor Eric told me don't die until we plant the church and he said after we can you can die but don't die until then (laughs) I still love you, my dude. I outed you in front of everybody. <laughs> I needed that. Because your boy was, 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 was shaking. Colossians 2.9 tells us this. Put this in your head when you think about the person of Jesus. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwelled bodily in Christ. If you want to know who God is, you want to know what God is, the person of Christ is where you go. This should change how you talk to Jesus. This should change how you depend on Jesus. 
This should change how we pray. This should change how we engage our people, our block, our spiritual warfare. This truth should cause us to bow in awe that this mighty God, literally sustaining my feeble little heart right now, has a care in the world for me and you. This is Jesus. What does it say in verse 18? It says that this Jesus, he is also the head of the body, the church. I don't know if y'all thought that I was the head of this church, or that Pastor Eric was the head of this church, or Pastor Derek was the head of this church, or Pastor Marty was the head of this church. We ain't the head of nothing, y'all. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. He's the head of all, he's the head of all of his people. The Pope, he ain't running nothing. Jesus is the head of his church. We are under shepherds, here to do his beating. His, we're lead servants at best. Here to serve the people of God so that the leader himself gets all the glory. And that's King Jesus. It says that he's the head of the body, the church. And it says that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now remember the definitions of firstborn that we had gone through just a minute ago. If firstborn means first created thing or first begotten or, 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 or born thing, but he's the firstborn over death, how can death create Jesus? That makes no sense. Within the very passage, it shows you what it's talking about. Now, what it, well, maybe it means in your head, well, he's the first one to rise from the dead, right? There it is. Nah. In the Old Testament, Elijah rose a man from death. Jesus himself, before he died, rose Lazarus from the dead. He ain't the first one to die and come back. What could it possibly mean? But when we understand the term means preeminent or superiority over, and it says that he is preeminent, has authority over, and is superior even over death. Now that passage makes sense because you understand what the word means. He is the firstborn. He is preeminent from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Verse 19 for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconciling everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood shed on the cross. You want to know what's the biggest reality of what Jesus has done? Not the fact that he's the creator of heaven and earth. That's amazing. That he is the exact representation and radiance of God's glory and nature. That's amazing but that this God gave himself, humbled himself to allow his own creation to kill him so that, all have, so that all who have faith in his perfect life can benefit from his righteous life. Because if I was that God and my creation spit on my face and rejected me like John once said, I'm flooding every day up in this peace. Noah's Ark happens every day when Canaan is God. But this God saw his position as God as something not to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, the form of a man, and allowed his own creation to spit upon him, rip his beard out, crucify him, so that those who have faith in his name can benefit from the righteous life that he lived. It's, it's called imputation. Jesus gives us his righteousness, and he takes away from us our sinful 
uh, disposition. It's called the great exchange. Heaven's best for earth's worst. His righteousness for our sin. He doesn't fill up your bucket of righteousness to the point where it's acceptable by God. That's theologically called impartation. Impartation is not true. You don't have righteousness up to here, but to get to heaven, it has to be here. And so Jesus pours into you to get it up to here. No, what uh, what does Isaiah teach about your righteousness? It's filthy. Oh, remember what Genesis said about Genesis 5? The only thing in your heart and mind is only evil all the time. Remember Genesis 17, 9? The heart is, is deceitful and sick and who can trust it? There's no righteousness in you. He needs to perform surgery on you and take all that you are out and place within you his righteousness. And he takes upon your sin and you get his righteousness so so that before the father, when he looks at those who have faith in his name, where Jesus's righteousness has been imputed on us, he sees the glory of his son's righteousness. And he says, welcome in to my heaven, good and faithful servant. I love you. Come enter into my rest. That takes all the weight off your shoulders because that means you don't have to work to get to heaven. You ever heard the phrase, you're not saved by works? Not true. You're saved by works. It's just not yours. You're saved by Jesus' work. His work on the cross is what gives us eternal life. And that big and lofty image of God, creator of all things, saw you as something to be redeemed and he gave himself to redeem you. He sees you. God is not just some distant, powerful being. He cares about the lowly. Your week was hard. He cares about your week. You struggled to get here. You got sick. He cares and he gives his life as the ultimate display of love. Listen to what it says from verse 21 to 23 as we close. I just want to close by reading this portion of scripture. I'm going to start at 19 and end at 23. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. (laughs) I need that. By making peace through the blood shed on the cross. I want to preach. I'm going to preach real quick. How? how? Making peace from what? Where's the hostility? Well, there's hostility between people, but there's also hostility between us and God. Our sin has driven a wedge. James 4.4 says that those who love the world are at enmity with God. That's us. We're at, we're, we're at enmity with God, but the, the blood of Jesus builds peace between us. And then this is what it says in verse 21. This is your big, lofty King Jesus that you worship. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. That's true of you. But verse 22 is a, a reversal. It says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in what? In faith. 
and are not shifted away from hope from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. And I pray that we too will become a servant of our big King Jesus, who gave his life for little old me and little old you. Father, there's so much to expound on this passage. There's so much more that we could say, um, literally could preach days and, 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 and weeks on this passage. But I pray that the thing that we get to take home from the realities of this verse is that you are so much bigger than we thought. You are so much mightier than we thought, yet you are so much nearer than we thought. And that you gave your life as a ransom for many. Lord, that's the key verse in the, chapter, in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the same Jesus, the same one who John says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. God, you gave your life as a ransom for many. And you regarded me in that many. And I don't even know why. You regarded these people in that many. And they don't deserve any of your grace. Neither do I. But you reconciled us to make us faultless and blameless before your Father. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being mighty and lifted up. The, the scripture says, if Jesus be lifted on high, all men will be drawn unto you. The reality is that's twofold, Lord. You truly were lifted high upon the cross and that men were drawn unto you, but that we would also proclaim you as high and lofty so that all men will be drawn to you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us just a little bit this morning. So much more. But I pray that these people would pick one of your Gospels, that they would own that Gospel as their own, that they would live the truth that they learned from King Jesus because of that Gospel, and that their faith would be boldly strengthened as a result of what they learned from that Gospel. Help us to not be lazy in 2022. Help us to have a big Jesus, to serve a big Jesus, and to act like we serve a big Jesus. Lord, thank you for loving us. Bless our people as we sing. We give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.